and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. On this episode of the podcast, we explore the life of singer, actress and icon Doris Day, with help from Auckland University musicologist Dr Gregory Camp. Together we explore her life, her marriages, her songs and her films. Her career spanned decades and demonstrated the enormous social change happening in America from the 1940s through to the 60s. We hope you'll understand why she was such an icon, the impact she had on America, and why Billy Joel included America's Virgin Doris Day as a lyric. Her iconic song, Que Sera Sera, is perhaps what she was best known for. The carefree tune is widely known even today, decades after it was recorded. Today, I'll be taking you on a ride through the life, loves and losses of Doris Day. She's America's sweetheart. She's the biggest actor in showbiz. She's got her own TV show. Doris Day has sold millions of records and her music has become the soundtrack of a generation. Her box office figures are enormous, raking in millions with smash hit after smash hit. She starred in Alfred Hitchcock movies and sung alongside Frank Sinatra. She's helped shape American film and music during what will become known as the Golden Age of Hollywood. Doris Day is uniquely talented, possessing both an incredible singing voice and an on-screen presence that captivates millions. And yet, she's miserable. She's broke, and she's alone. It's 1968, and Doris Day finds herself at the end of her career, recently widowed, looking forward to retiring and focusing on her charity work. But tragedy has struck, as it always seems to for Doris. She's been betrayed by her recently deceased husband of 17 years. For Doris Day, the career highs and domestic lows are constant, yet she perseveres and becomes an icon. America's sweetheart takes to the stage and wins the heart of a rapidly changing America. Born in 1922 in Cincinnati, Ohio, to Alma Welts and Frederick Kappelhoff, Doris's early childhood is marred by her parents' unhappy marriage. At age eight, she finds her father having an affair with her mother's best friend. The affair is the last straw for Doris's mother, and Doris's parents divorce when she's 12 years old. She will see precious little of her father following the divorce. Doris dreams of being a dancer, and her mother enrolls her in a variety of dance lessons. As a teenager in the 1930s, she forms a dance duo with Jerry Doherty. Together with Jerry, she wins $500 in a dance competition, and they're given the chance to train and dance in Hollywood. Sadly, however, this invitation to the world of fame and fortune is put on hold due to a grisly tragedy. It will be years before Doris is able to make the trip to Hollywood. On October 13, 1937, after a farewell party celebrating Doris and Jerry's upcoming trip to Hollywood, Doris is the unfortunate passenger in a car hit by a train. She suffers compound fractures in her right leg, and doctors doubt she will ever dance again. This life-changing injury ends one dream, 
yet it will allow Doris to realise a new one. During her year-long recovery, Doris becomes a passionate fan of radio and through this discovers her singing voice. Her mother, seeing her daughter's talents, arranges for her to get vocal lessons with Grace Rain, a talented coach who also is a friend of Cincinnati bandleader Barney Rapp. These connections will help kick-start Doris's singing career. Musicologist Dr Gregory Camp explains why her voice was so special and what Grace and Barney must have seen. If I had to pick one word to describe it, I think I would say smooth. She has a smoothness throughout the range of her voice, whether she's singing high notes or low notes, that all sounds like one single voice. So that makes it easy to listen to, pleasurable to listen to. And it means that she can sing a wide variety of, of music and still sound very much like herself. So there's a lot of consistency throughout her sound. In 1939, she starts singing with Barney's big band. Her talent was discovered after Barney heard her voice on the radio. He'd auditioned over 200 singers before settling on Doris, and it's Barney who convinces her to change her name from Kappelhoff to Day, as it's more catchy and memorable. In the 1910s, the big band style of jazz emerged, and it reached the height of its popularity in the 1940s. This big band style successfully incorporates the energetic genre of swing jazz. The most famous product of this mix of band and genre is Frank Sinatra's work with Tommy Dorsey. Dr. Camp elaborates on this iconic style and Doris's place in it. So a big band is essentially a jazz ensemble of a large size. Big wind section, a big brass section and a rhythm section, which consists of piano and drums, and often also a harp. It's a, a bit of extra class, uh, is how that was interpreted. Um, usually 15 to 20 performers, um, playing often quite complex arrangements of the hit songs of the day, uh, and with a mix of group playing and solo playing. The solo playing would often be improvised, and the group playing would be written out, composed out. And... Most of these bands had a featured soloist. Sometimes that was the conductor. So, for example, Benny Goodman was a clarinetist as well as leading his band. Uh, Tommy Dorsey was a uh, trombone player, also led the band. And Doris Day was, of course, a singer. Um, because of the gender expectations of the time, the female singers did not lead their own bands. Some male singers did. Mel Torme was a leader as well as a performer. So the women, though, were often singing alongside a band that was already established and under someone else's name. Typically, there are 17 members of a big band, hence the name. And it's in this era of music that Doris works and grows her fame. She enjoys incredible success, and her career as a musician flourishes, allowing her to now work with Les Brown's popular big band. Les Brown is an immensely influential musician, and through working with him, Doris is able to raise her profile significantly, moving beyond local fame to national acclaim. The Les Brown Band tour for six years together, growing their fame, with the young Doris treated like the band's little sister. As her career is rising, she has her first and only child, Terry, born in 1943. She was only 17 at the time. At the same age, she marries trombonist Al Jordan against the advice of the band's leader. 
Jordan's a fellow member of Les Brown's big band, and he proves to be a cruel and violent man. A friend of Doris's later recalls an incident where Al held a gun against Doris's pregnant stomach and threatened to shoot her while he was driving the couple down a country lane. Allegedly, Al felt Doris had committed some slight against him that had sparked his jealousy and rage. She finally leaves Al in 1944 after enduring a year of abuse. This year of abuse will coincide with her 18th birthday. A young Doris Day is ready to take on the world. Her work with Les Brown's band embodies that all-encompassing post-World War II American optimism. Her voice, spread by radio, is the soundtrack to the emerging era of American prosperity. America leaves World War II as the most powerful and productive nation in the world. The America of the 1950s and 60s gives birth to modern pop and consumer culture. In stark contrast to her personal life, her music embodies the optimistic mood of the late 1940s. She captures the spirit of the times with the song Sentimental Journey. Gonna take a sentimental journey. The hit song, recorded with Les Brown's band, becomes the anthem of returning American troops. The song releases in 1944 and enjoys years of popularity. The ballad describes someone returning home wondering why they ever left. The song is her first hit record and the first of many of her records that will sell over a million copies. She becomes known as America's Sweetheart. But this nickname hides the fact that she's a single mother who's recently escaped an abusive marriage. Doris's choice in men is abominable. She soon proves that Al Jordan is no outlier when she meets George Weidler, a career saxophonist. While not abusive, her second husband is a different sort of awful. She marries George in 1947, yet the marriage lasts only eight months. Their divorce is finalised in 1949. George leaves Doris out of fear that her career is overshadowing his own. He can see that Doris is becoming a notable personality, and he doesn't want to be known as Mr. Doris Day. His request for a divorce comes in a letter while she's performing in New York. A year after George's petty fears prompt her second divorce, Doris breaks onto the silver screen. Once again, her career flourishes as her personal life crumbles. Her transition from singing in nightclubs to singing on screen was seamless. Dr. Camp talks about how she got her first movie, Michael Curtiz's romantic comedy Romance on the High Seas, in which Doris's voice was the standout performance. She was, was discovered for films by Michael Curtiz, who was um, one of the major film directors uh, at the Warner Brothers studio at the time. He directed m- movies like Casablanca and a lot of Errol Flynn epics, but also musicals. So he and his team heard her in a club and I, I would assume found her records after that as well and thought that they would try her in the movies. So the, the usual process of the time was that you would be called in for a screen test where they would film you doing a, a short scene, acting or singing, whatever your specialty was. The, the producers would all have a look at that, and then they would decide whether that performer should be offered a contract. Doris Day was a big hit in the screen test, and with audiences as well when they, when they tested it out. 
So they signed her to a contract at Warner Brothers, and she made her first movie in 1948 called Romance on the High Seas, um, in which she was actually a late replacement for Betty Hutton, who was a bigger star of the time. So it, it's kind of unusual that she has what is really the leading role in that movie. Uh, it was unusual for a brand new movie actress to be given a big role, but they took a chance on her and it worked. The audiences liked it. So then they put her into a whole a series of films where she plays a similar part, always a singer, so that that allows her to sing on screen. They, these are mostly somewhat saccharine melodramas uh, in which she falls in love, falls out of love, has to find the right man, that sort of thing, but with a lot of opportunity for singing. Work comes slowly but steadily for Doris following the 1948 release of Romance on the High Seas. Her on-screen legacy will be truly formed in the 50s and 60s, and throughout the early 60s, she'll be considered the number one box office star. In 1951, she marries her agent, Marty Melcher. It will be the longest and perhaps happiest of all her marriages. For the first time, her personal life begins to reflect the success of her professional life. In 1956, she stars as the female lead in Alfred Hitchcock's blockbuster, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Like most of Hitchcock's work, it's received well by fans and critics alike. However, Doris's biggest film comes in 1959, when she stars alongside Rock Hudson in the romantic comedy Pillow Talk. Rock Hudson and Doris form a deep friendship and experience enormous success as an on-screen duo. This partnership sees Doris reach her peak in popularity and critical acclaim. After his death to AIDS in 1985, Doris will say, If there is a heaven, I'm sure Rock Hudson is there because he was such a kind person. Reviewing Pillow Talk in 1959, The Hollywood Reporter says, Miss Doris is absolutely top in her sophistication. Pillow Talk sees Doris reinvent herself. She moves away from the image she's created as America's sweetheart. One director says, before the making of Pillow Talk, Doris hadn't a clue as to her potential as a sex image. Moving away from the stale, conservative, sexless image she'd cultivated in past decades, she now takes on a far more sexualized Marilyn Monroe-esque image. Doris and Rock successfully reunite for two more romantic comedies, Send Me No Flowers in 1960 and Lover Come Back in 1961. Romantic comedies become the genre that Doris is best known for. Her newfound empowered and full acting roles prove to be short-lived, however, as her subsequent films see her become the butt of men's jokes, playing little more than a ditzy blonde. This is typical of the era. Many actresses' talents are squandered as they are typecast and then forever used to draw in crowds to lowbrow romantic comedies. Doris's work in Calamity Jane as a gun-toting, horse-wrangling cowgirl and her powerful acting in Pillow Talk and The Man Who Knew Too Much revealed a talent that is wasted in these later years. But it's not just her career that's become lacking. Her life off-screen has taken yet another turn for the worse. Marty Melcher, her husband, has died. With Marty's death in 1968... His theft and betrayal are revealed. Doris's happiest marriage is forever tarnished. What's been a dream come true becomes a decades-long legal battle. 
Through their attorney, it turns out Marty has squandered all of Doris's earnings, leaving her half a million dollars in debt. Before his death, Marty also contracts Doris, without telling her, to a five-year TV series on CBS, The Doris Day Show. He's done this despite her having refused TV offers for years, knowing she despises the format. So she's now in debt, her film career is stagnating, and she's attached to a show she despises. Perhaps worst of all, however, her happy home life, all she's ever really wanted in life, has been revealed to be nothing but a cruel charade. Her loving husband was nothing but a crook. Marty Melcher adopted Doris's son, giving him his surname, while bleeding Doris dry. The betrayal ran deep. It will take her decades to finally win a legal battle against her former attorney to retrieve a sliver of what's been stolen from her. The attorney, Jerome Rosenthal, had been given charge of Doris's finances since the 1940s. A justice of the Supreme Court of California stated, During that period... Rosenthal committed breaches of professional ethics that are difficult to exaggerate. Rosenthal drags the battle out over decades, launching bogus countersuits and weak appeals. Of the $22 million eventually awarded to Doris in 1986, she receives only a little. Most of the award is swallowed up by the protracted legal battle. But beyond the theft, Melcher signed her on to a TV show she never wanted. However, the Doris Day show becomes a popular family sitcom, with Doris starring as a widowed mother of young boys. Its plot varies wildly from season to season, as tweaks are made by Doris and the network to boost its popularity further and to keep pace with industry trends. Doris's character begins the show as a rural widow and ends as a proudly single urbanite. Following the Doris Day show and a few more successful albums, Doris's finances recover, but her only happy marriage has been irrevocably scarred by theft and betrayal. In her own words, she says, When my third husband died, a man I'd been married to for 17 years, I discovered that not only had he contrived to wipe out the millions I had earned, but he left me with a debt of half a million dollars, my reward for a lifetime of hard work. Yes, sir, America's la-di-da happy virgin. In the 1970s, Doris begins to withdraw from the public eye. Running for five seasons and 128 episodes, the end of the Doris Day show in 1973 is essentially the end of her career. She marries her fourth and final husband, Barry Comden, a successful restaurateur, in 1976. However, this too will end in divorce. Barry says of the divorce that they're simply incompatible, and that Doris preferred the company of dogs. Their divorce is finalised in 1981. Beyond her status as a cultural icon of the last four decades, Doris starts dedicating her time to helping animals. She becomes utterly devoted to helping animals and starts up her own foundation, known as the Doris Day Animal League, which sees her take a high-level approach to animal welfare. She wants to get to the root of animal overpopulation and homelessness. Accordingly, she focuses her charity on spaying and neutering efforts. She continues attacking the roots of animal cruelty with her organisation, becoming increasingly involved in lobbying efforts to effect change. 
In 2004, President George W. Bush gives her the Medal of Freedom, the highest civilian award in the United States in recognition of her non-profit work helping animals. Sadly, a few months after she receives the Medal of Freedom, Doris's beloved son Terry passes away, dying of melanoma. Doris and Terry enjoyed an extremely close personal as well as professional relationship, with Terry being handed joint creative control of the Doris Day Show in its second season. In 2011, Doris releases her My Heart album, dedicating the song My Buddy to her late son. My buddy, my buddy. She says, he really was my buddy. I wanted that song to be there because it was for him. And well, all I can say is that I miss him very much. A friend of Doris's ads, they were amazing together. There wasn't a day that went by when Terry wasn't involved with one of his mother's projects. When Doris passes away in 2019, at age 92, from pneumonia, her obituaries are numerous and feature in many large publications. She has no funeral service and has no memorial or headstone. She's simply cremated as per her wishes. Her foundation remains her enduring legacy and continues to be active today. Dr. Camp explains why Billy Joel included her in his song and her legacy. Um, well, the the whole list of things in that song are important touchstones of especially American culture in the mid 20th century. And she was one of those touchstones because she was not only known as a, a good actress and a good singer, but rather as an as an archetype. Like I mentioned before, she was a symbol for a certain kind of American identity and of American femininity. So she was more than just someone who did things in front of a camera or in front of a, a microphone. She uh, signaled things beyond what she actually did and was a symbol for a whole, a whole time period, really. But perhaps it's best to simply remember Doris Day as she wished to be remembered. I like joy. I want to be joyous. I want to have fun on the set. I want to wear beautiful clothes and look pretty. I want to smile and I want to make people laugh. And that's all I want. I like it. I like being happy. I want to make others happy. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song by discussing Red China, the story of how the Chinese Communist Party took control of the most populous country on Earth. Special thanks to our guest speaker, musicologist Dr. Gregory Camp from Auckland University, to Will McGillivray for the introduction music, and to our writer, Angus Wilson. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning. The music appearing in this episode was Buddy 
Artist Doris Day with Paul Weston and his orchestra. Writers Walter Donaldson and Gus Kahn. Sentimental Journey. Artist Doris Day with the Les Brown Band. And K. Sarah Sarah. Artist Doris Day. Writers Jay Livingston and Ray Evans.